morning. personal experiences that are relative to us. Like, you see what I did there? I did it, I did it. <laughs> I would like to point your attention to the screen above um, where there's a QR code located. Please pull out your phones, take a picture for later, and then scan for now so you can view today's program. In the program, if you turn to page three, um, you can find another QR code that's clickable because we fancy in this house. Um, this will be for any questions you may have during the session. It is, um, if you, we cover a topic, you just want to ask a quick question, throw it on that Google form because we will try to get to it. And if not, get to it at the end of this Q&A, we might schedule another Q&A to go live on our podcast again. Um, just want to let you know, for warning, this could be completely anonymous or you can put your name up to you. The only people that will see it is us and we will... That's it. You do what you feel most comfortable and how you feel. Thank you so much for coming this morning. I love to see all your faces. And I will pass it off to my lovely co-host. 
Hello, everyone. I have the honor of introducing our amazing panelists today. Uh, when we made this, this, when we thought about who we wanted to represent this topic, especially in this state, it was just perfect, the people we chose for this, and you will see why very, very soon. So we have Miss Cecilia Clark, Director of Bands at Alatuna High School, uh, Mr. Wilson Gustama, Director of Bands at Dutchtown High School, and um, Mr. Sheldon Frazier, North Cobb High School Director of Bands. And joining us via Zoom, which you do not see her now, but you will see her very soon, is Dr. Cynthia Johnston-Turner, former UGA Director of Bands, and currently Dean Faculty of Music at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario. So please give a round of applause to our amazing panelists. So before we begin, um, we just want to talk about, first of all, the why. Why we are doing this presentation, why is this important? Um, and the purpose of this presentation is for one reason, and one reason only. For the people. Period. So now, I'll pass it back off to Amy. So raise your hand if you've heard the buzzwords DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Raise your hand. All right, now raise your hand if you actually know what those three words mean. Okay, so we're gonna give a little textbook definition to these three words, and I'm gonna start with diversity. So diversity is the range of human differences, including but not limited to race, ethnicity, gender, gender identity, sexual orientation, age, social class, physical ability, or attributes, religious or ethical value systems, national origins, and political beliefs. Equity is the quality of being fair and impartial. And inclusion, which is the action or state of including or being included within a group or structure. So before we begin, we'd like to start with a few statistics. Um, Based on our research and our findings, we found that out of GBA 2022 presenters, we have a split of gender between male 55%, female 45%. It's pretty good, right? Almost, almost equal, right? Um, then we take it to uh, when we break down by race, we have people of color um, coming in at 20% and non-POC coming at 80%. It's a little bit different, right? There's an obvious drop in that. And then we have LGPE repertoire that I know you see the difference with that, right? That's pretty obvious. 5% for POC, 95% um, for non-POC. And when, we, when you look at those lists of the band LGPE, there are two non-POC composers who by themselves almost is equivalent to the amount of pieces um, by POC. Two composers are almost more than all the POCs combined. It's already such a very small number, obviously. These statistics represent something, right? Um, raise your hand if you ever heard or used the word standard repertoire. You just ever heard of standard repertoire, right? It's a pretty common word. Um, regardless of what our individual definitions of the word is, standard repertoire basically means repertoire that is standardized, right? Or um, repertoire that is standard. So please reflect on that um, for a moment, what that means. Before our first question, 
We want to begin by emphasizing the need for sessions such as this, um, which I will pass to Cecilia to start off. Thank you, Laura. And, and um, came in this morning and, and said, Lauren, I know we, we've got this, this agenda for today, but something happened this week, just this week. And I think you're here, so you realize this is a real issue, but for, for everyone that maybe is gonna watch the podcast or those folks that you encourage to be directed to the podcast later this week, they need to know that for everybody who's over it because they think that DEI is just a buzzword, like SEL or differentiation and all of those educational buzzwords, it, it's not just a buzzword. The stories are real. This book was released this past semester, The Horizon Leans Forward, and in this book, there are stories, and it's not just the story of Alfred Watkins growing up in a segregated South. It's also his story about his first football game where the KKK was ready to burn his house. But then it continues, it doesn't stop decades ago. It, it tells stories of Asian composers and conductors, of women, of diverse voices in terms of gender and sexual orientation that continue today. And when I say continue today, just this past Sunday, a group of the greatest minds, some of the greatest minds in the pageantry arts were meeting on Zoom. And their Zoom was hijacked. And it was hijacked because it was a meeting of people from equity-seeking groups. And the hijackers, the haters, they played footage of George Floyd's murder and declared using several racial epithets that that's what they had planned for everyone in the Zoom. So it's a real issue today, right now, here at our precious GMEA convention. And, and, and it's not our issue because we're women or because of the color of our skin or because of who we love. It's our issue because we're educators. And if we're going to really push for change from the inside, everyone needs to take issue with it and be educated so that we can make our world better. So um, we're just glad that you're here and that we want to hear the message. Lauren, I know you have some questions for us. No, yeah, I mean, just thank you for sharing that because it's, unfortunately, we, we face these things very often and continue to do it, and this is why these sessions are important, and talking about it is important. Um, the first question, which Cecilia, since we're already, you know, talking, um, I have to ask you, is based on standard repertoire and the idea of standard repertoire. So, my first question, Standard repertoire is supposedly chosen based on quality, significance, and educational value. Have you seen the idea of standard repertoire bring forth exclusion? Who gets to decide what pieces of composers are worthy enough to be programmed? Um, who gets to decide? Let's start with that one. We'll break it down just a little bit. Um, who decides um, what repertoire is significant enough or what composers are of high enough quality to be programmed? You do. You do. Just stop at that. No one has to tell you. It is the most important decision that you get to make as music educators. I, I, I would argue that, and, and some might, may disagree, but I believe that 
your, your student's course of study, that's what you get to decide. And that you have to remember that you're not just choosing what's significant enough to program, but what you're going to study. And then to what degree and breadth that you're going to study that literature. I, I think that, you know, it goes back to we are teachers, right? It, and that's to say that everything, we, we, we tend to believe that everything that we choose to play with our ensembles has to be performed. No, I, I think we need to remember that it's the process that's the most important. So, it, more so than the product. So it's okay to study music and not perform it. I also think that it's important, going kind of a little bit deeper into your question, it's important to differentiate between standard repertoire and state lists. Um, if we, you know, Lauren kind of already alluded to standard repertoire, we're talking about literature that's stood the test of time. It's works that have been performed numerous occasions, different groups over a long period of time. Well, what or who, right, including the composers, that's currently popular or, or you know, the, the it person or works, it's not necessarily a standard if we use that definition, but the music may be a very high quality. And so I don't think that, you know, the standard list needs to dictate to us what is high quality. You know, the idea that state lists equal standard repertoire somehow, or that in some way our state list or any state list is comprehensive of all of standard repertoire or high quality literature, I would say is a widely inappropriate misperception. Um, Cecilia, real quick, not yes. to interrupt you, I'm no. sure um, uh, Dr. Turner said, currently the publishers decide on quality. Um, but we also need to address how busy band directors are, and so gatekeepers like publishers and state leaders in music ed need to take ownership on this work. I just wanted to show, tell you that was her interjection. Everybody say good morning to Cindy. <laughs> good morning. Hi, Dr. Turner. Yeah, and, you know, I just, I, I think that that's something, and maybe as a younger and experienced teacher, you go to the list for guidance, but let it just be a guide. Right? I think we have to separate those things. There's high quality literature, and there are standards, and there is a state list. And it's not, you know, I, it doesn't necessarily mean that one dictates the other. So I, I think there are certainly standards on our list, right? But it's not mutually exclusive. Like our lists need to be expanded, and I think we're gonna talk about that a little bit more. But I will tell you that for me personally, I don't go to the list when I'm choosing my student's course of study. I go to the list when I have to for LGP, and that's it. Sheldon, I know, has some thoughts about this as well. Yeah, no, and they're very much parallel with yours. I think you hit the nail on the head in regards to you are the gatekeeper for what comes into your band room and what your students are teaching. Just like you're the gatekeeper of what you allow into your psyche, which is why I don't watch like fight videos, but that's an aside. But like I, you, you program what you can connect yourself to. My top band right now is playing uh, Omar Thomas, I wonder if you're not familiar with it, that's your homework. Um, it is the first time I've been, this is what, year 12 or 13, I guess, and it's the first time that I have been viscerally connected to a score when I'm studying. I told the students, um, 
Um, okay, guys, I, I, was, I was just being very transparent with them. I said, hey, you know, we're going to put this piece of music out in the next week or two, um, and I'm not putting it out yet because I've just now got to the point where I can study it without harm. And, I, and, and I'm talking about me as a, a black man in America. The sounds that are written in the score literally like echo the sounds of St. James Fire Baptized Holiness Church in Irmo, South Carolina, where I grew up. Not, you know, after Holy Night, not like tribal, like actually the sounds that I myself know and have heard my entire life. And so I think, and, and it's obviously an outstanding piece of music, but because I am so connected to it, my students are then connected to it. And so what you allow into your psyche, what you study um, mentally, physically, emotionally, what you invest yourself in, becomes what your band room believes in, becomes what the culture of your students are. And so if you allow yourself to be a person that, you know, that can uh, be open to a culture outside of your own, you know, we're, we're doing that piece, but then we're also doing things called Vanity Fair. Wildly different, you know? It's, it, that's also one listen to that as well. Beautiful piece of music. Um, but, I, and even in my, my, my study, I haven't necessarily seen the lyric opera that it's based off of, but I can use my imagination. I can empathize with what the characters are as I'm studying the score. And just like you can use your imagination to believe in a cartoon mouse and believe in a, uh, an, an older white gentleman coming down your chimney to give you good tidings and gifts every year. You can also use your imagination to empathize with someone walking into your Bible study and shooting nine people that you love. Uh, I should end on that, sorry. I want to add, uh, Dr. Turner said, um, if you haven't, you should all have a look at the program note for Come Sunday and really read what Omar has to put down there and what he has put in the score. Um, also, could y'all use the microphone? Dr. Turner's having a hard time to hear oh. sometimes. I, we, we thought it wasn't going to be a problem, but then it did. So. Yes, we can. So I think going on to the next question, something that has um, become one of my things I've focused on in grad school, is um, how, as music educators, this is for um, all of our panelists over there, um, and Dr. Turner, how as music educators are we incorporating popular culture within our program? The music obviously has their attention outside of the band room 24-7. It's literally what they love to listen to all the time. Why don't we use this as a springboard to show them other forms of music, a.k.a. meet them where they are at and lead them? Good morning. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, good morning. Um, I, I said this yesterday in my session. We have a, an obligation to acknowledge the music that our students listen to. Uh, one, because it helps us learn about them. Um, two, it's important that we convey the message that all music is culturally relevant and there is no hierarchy for music. So we don't need to tell our students, well, what we are working on is serious. This is real music. What you listen to is just plain music. It's not, well, the music they listen to represents their livelihood. So it's up to us to understand it and incorporate it uh, in our lessons. Uh, like I said, if your students listen to trap rap, well, that's a lesson on triplets right there. They listen to Migos. So 
So when your students are struggling with triplets and can those record no triplets, it's not something that they cannot understand or uh, conceptualize. You just have to find a way to reach them. Um, and what better way to reach them with something that's culturally relevant to them? So it's incredibly important. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, can you hear me? Can you all yeah. hear me okay? Good morning, everybody. I wish I was there. I, I thought what I would do <clears throat> show a snowy background because I'm up here in Canada, but decided just to, to do my home office. And I just wanted to add to that and say, I think we should acknowledge and take a closer look at the fact that the majority of groove-based music that we get in, uh, in our band programs are hip-hop beats, right? They're, they're blues-based. And, and that whole evolution to hip hop. So that's just sort of um, riffing on what was just said in terms of hierarchies of music and what's becoming more and more quote unquote popular in a lot of band pieces are based on hip hop beats. So I, I just want to point that out. So did you have anything? I, I mean, I think I, if I would add, I think that some of us are, I, I could, I be, and I say this because this was me at some point, well, there's no literature like that available for concert band. But we've got athletic bands and we've got jazz bands and we've got chamber groups and we've got students with the skills to arrange that will be the next Laura Estes. You know, so give them that voice. That, that is certainly a way, um, I would not relinquish it to just that, although we only do that in marching band. Marching band is where we do popular music because then it does have that sense of hierarchy, but it's a, at least a starting point. It's, it's some place for all of us to begin. I wanna to add to that. Um, something I think some of us don't realize, and I didn't realize this when I was like teaching sectionals and all this stuff, marching band is probably our most visible band to our community. And we can do popular music, and you're like, okay, but it's not um, educational. Then find the arrangers who add that educational value that you may be looking for within the harmonies and stuff. Because they're out there. Or if they're not, how about you go commission a young arranger in college who needs the money, first of all, and needs the experience <laughs> to work with a living band to hear what it sounds like while they're living and work with y'all. And that's a whole experience. Um, that um, Mr. Wilson talked about yesterday in this session. Like, bring guests in, let them have a great experience. I just want to add that. That is our most visible band to our community, and that's how we can connect. Um, so this question is going to um, Cecilia first. Um, one of my big things is about doing background research to pieces. Um, as a uh, choir kid growing up, my, my big thing that I loved was spirituals. But... When I would be in those ensembles for, for some time, I wouldn't feel like that would get to just do that Bach or Beethoven or Mozart guy. We'll spend an hour and 45 minutes on those. And then the last five minutes of rehearsal, oh, the spiritual, we don't need to rehearse it. Oh, we're just going, it's the closer, it's easy. No, it's not. Because that's somebody's story. So I want to ask Cecily first, what is the necessary process for background research for pieces such as American Guernica, um, Unspoken, Macintosh Copley, Come Sunday, all of these pieces that are written from a different perspective than you might have or anybody might have, what is the necessary way for that? Uh, 
So, and I know Cindy can talk specifically about some of those pieces that you've mentioned because she's done them with her ensembles, but in general in a public school setting, I think it's really important that we approach the background to a piece consistently. That um, if it's not something that you do on a regular basis, I would encourage you to, uh, because making it relevant and making it so that that connection is always present. And if you're in the state of Georgia, which I assume most of you are, it's actually in our standard to make connections, just saying because we might have written this. Um, but beyond that, because how many of us actually teach to the standard? Sorry, my boss is here. You didn't hear that. Um, <laughs> but, but beyond that, I think that that something should always be and it should be consistent. It shouldn't be that you spend an enormous amount of time teaching the background. I'll, I'll say K to folk songs too because we're playing it right now. And, and you talk about Frank T. Kelly's upbringing in Louisiana and all of this, and then you don't ever talk about it someplace else or vice versa. You never do that, but all of a sudden you're gonna do come Sunday and now you're gonna stop and talk about it. Because then that just seems, that inconsistency, like, Yes, it's special, and yes, we want to make those connections, but why not always? Um, Sam Hazo Jr. Uh, calls it warming up a piece. Before he starts a piece, he always warms it up by talking about you know, the motivation behind it. Um, so making that connection, and then I think for some of us where we might travel into pieces that the background is not a place of comfort for us, Teach the facts. It's okay to teach the facts. You don't have to insert a, a, your opinion. You don't necessarily have to make it a conversation. You teach the facts. And then hopefully, organically, coming out of that will be those conversations and those personal experiences that you are able to then bring to life for your classroom. Um, and Dr. Turner, I'm going to give this question to you as well. Um, and I know you have a couple comments too. Um, so uh, you are then yours. Come on, yes. Come on, yes. You got it, Dr. Turner. Oh, sorry. And what? What? Am I, it's really difficult for me to hear. So. Um, sorry. Do you want me? To, yeah. It's just. I mean, I was just. I. I just wrote yes to Cecilia's. Uh, to Cecilia's comment, and I and I I, I put it. I'm still seeing this, y'all. I'm seeing a lot of my colleagues uh, in college in, in college band director world, and and also in high school. They're doing these wonderful programs of black composers music during Black History Month, and that's terrific. Except that it's not normalizing diversity and equity, correct? So we can't just do music by black composers during that Black History Month. We shouldn't just do female composers during Women's History Month. I, my, my comment is that we need to normalize this kind of diverse programming um, by doing it all the time, right? And, I, and the other comment I wanted to make to what I'm hearing is that, um, to Anthony's point, um, we, are we studying the scores for all of the composers we are programming with the same intention. Um, do we study the history and context of spirituals with the same uh, uh, effort and rigor at, that we're studying, I don't know, Gunther Schuller or, or, or some other person that we're programming, some other composer that we're programming? Um, 
Yeah, that's that's basically what I want to say to that. Absolutely. Um, it wouldn't be relative pitch if we didn't get a little spicy. So we hope y'all are a little ready to get spicy this early in the morning. Um, it's always important, I think, to bring bring ideals back home, right? It makes more sense, it, it's more effective when it feels like it's, it's where we are currently. Um, my next question, and I wanna ask Wilson first, um, to what extent should entities such as GMEA and stateless committees for standardized evaluations such as LGPE be held accountable for exclusion of repertoire by underrepresented composers? And what can teachers do to combat and rectify the situation? To the greatest extent of the law. <laughs> um, I know Cecilia spoke about it. When it in terms of putting uh, pieces on the list, it's something that directors are supposed to submit as a whole process. And like Cindy said, we're busy. Um, so I think it's up to those entities to uh, make it a point of focus and make sure it's something that's intentional. When we're talking about trying to diversify lists, we have to get out of the idea that, well, we're making things about race. Or we're making things about gender. No, we're making things about representation. Um, I know three years ago, um, me and some students, we were at JanFest, and I had a 10th grade trumpet player, I'll never forget this day, but a 10th grade trumpet player, she was like, you know, we're playing a piece by a woman. I didn't know there were women composers. And my stomach just sank, and I just, I realized I never played, we hadn't played anything in the last three, four years by a woman composer. And I realized that that was a failure on my part to make sure that she is represented. Um, so we have to be intentional about it um, with our students in terms of them seeing themselves represented, but as well as other people represented as well. So if I teach students that are predominantly Caucasian, I need to bring in clinicians, and I know I'm not talking about compulsion, but I need to bring in clinicians that are African-American or that are Asian or that are not Caucasian, and vice versa. It's up to us to expose our students as much as possible to all facets of music making. So, um, yes, we submit things to be played, but uh, the entities themselves have to take ownership of diversifying the list. The stat that Mike gave about the two composers equaling up the, entire, the entirety of POC, that was just mind-boggling to me. And uh, something has to be done. Cecilia, did you want to add something? <laughs> she, she asked for spice. We've done it. We've submitted titles because it's important to us. I submitted a, a list of titles to be added this year so that we could play Kataj's music at LGPE, so that we could play Kate's music at LGPE. And, and that's fine. And we've got a great committee right now. But it needs to be more. I, when Cindy was at UGA, Jan Fest guest conductors were urged to at least program one piece that represented uh, a composer from an equity-seeking group. I think on my program, I made all of my selections. That, um, <laughs> but if we're talking about real change, I, I would love to see Jamie A make this statement that you're not going to perform at this convention without it. Um, 
I also would love to see our governing body do the work, not the band directors. GMEA commit to adding repertoire by those composers on an annual basis, and not because we asked for it, but because they are so compelled to diversify our list that they make a commitment. Whatever it is, a set number, every year we're gonna add three, five, 10 pieces at every grade level for, for the state list. And, and that it comes from GMEA. You know that right now in our state, a composer can't submit their own work for consideration on the list. So it's time for a change. Sorry, I just had my mind going. It's also important to understand that we all have an implicit bias as it pertains to what we think and what we experience. And it's important that we acknowledge it um, and work around it, per se. We all have an implicit bias. There is no default. There, oh, hello. <laughs> there, is no, there is no default to what we do, so like, Getting a woman composer isn't like, well, this is extraordinary, but the default is the white male composer. This is normal, standardized. And so we also need to understand that diversifying our list isn't compromising its integrity. Um, I just want to mention one thing that Wilson said to me, or said, resonated with me, and I feel like it's been left out of the thing when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Before we move forward and get better, we have to admit our mistakes. When I was a chamber coach, I look back on it, never programmed anything that wasn't by a white dead guy, because that's how I was taught in brass quintet, was through all that rep. We can't do how we were taught. That doesn't work anymore. That's not how we should have taught. We should develop our own pedagogy and move forward. So that is, I look back at it, had a whole mental breakdown, I was like, I'm a horrible educator, I should never teach again. <laughs> like dropped all educating for like six months and like really had to think about it. But if you don't look back and does it affect you, you can never move forward. Going to our next question about some applicable applications, I use the same word twice. In what ways do we structure either your curriculum or program to make sure all of your students have a sense of belonging and ownership? And this is to Sheldon to help everybody, to help all of us. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that for every other there is an, uh, a layer of armor that your child, uh, that your students bring into the classroom. Um, racial, sexual, anything. Uh, it, it, they come in with this feeling of it's a 14, 15, 16, 17 year old. In order to function, to survive, there's this kind of coat of armor that I have to kind of, when I walk into a room, I have to survey and go, okay, how many other black people are here? How many uh, other this or that are there? And that's just a part of, kind of how we see things. And I think that this uh, part of this, oh, this conversation is, yes, being aware of a number of the different kinds of people that are in your, um, uh, your ensembles and your program, but then also recognizing the fact that they have that suit of armor. My old school called it baggage that your students would walk into the door with. Um, and so I think that there is, uh, there, there's a twofold argument here. Number one of recognizing, yes, the, the, the um, awareness of different um, cultural backgrounds and ideologies are sitting in front of you, but then also with however different that is from the mainstream, there is something that that person's had to do to in some way assimilate. 
Um, I, I, one of the things that we, we advocated, or advocated, we applied this year um, was, I would always have students, I don't know if this happens to you, but you'd have students that walk into your uh, office and say, uh, Mr. or Mrs. So-and-so, uh, I heard this thing about this person. This person said something really unsavory, and I don't really tell you about it, but I just think you need to know. I'm like, okay, I, what, what can I do with that? Like, what, what am I able to do with this vague information that you're giving me? And so I realized that some students might not be comfortable necessarily sharing what they might feel in regards to um, feeling slighted or feeling um, um, like someone has not recognized or, or, or seen them or someone has said something unsavory to them. I, 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 we did this um, thing called uh, raising a red flag. And so we have a little box that I've, there's a box in the office that's been there since I've been at the school and I have, I have no idea what it's for. So we decided to use it for some reason. And um, so we decided it's a, it's a lock, kind of like a payment box kind of thing. And so. Um, we put a sign above that said, raise a red flag, say something. Uh, if you see something, say something. We give them the opportunity to just, if you see something or if you've heard something or if someone says something uh, that is off color or they've said something uh, to not recognize who you are as a person, write it in. Uh, write it on a red flag, put it in that box. Every single Friday, I'll check it religiously and address it whenever I need to. They can put their name on it if they want to. They do not have to if they don't want to. But it gives them an opportunity to be able to express themselves without necessarily coming to me and then speaking face to face. Because sometimes, particularly coming out of this past year, sometimes we just can't find the words. Sometimes, it, you know, we, it's, for younger students, it's harder to find the courage to be able to say, this happened yesterday. Someone said this to me. This, or even, even me, if I say something that is off color, they can, they can address that on that red flag. Um, and then obviously myself being open, you know, I, I um, have had a number of students that have come to me that have uh, expressed um, their um, uh, transitioning, you know, from, one, uh, from their freshman year to their senior year. And I will say, I, I applaud you, congratulations. I have encoded you in my mind as, as one person, and I will make a mistake. And for that, I very, very, very much apologize. And as part of that conversation, I tell them, it is important for me that you feel, that you feel heard, that you, see, that you uh, feel recognized in who you are. Because all of us are, are growing and evolving and changing. And I, I always make sure I use that where I don't want to just be understood, that you just know Mr. Frazier is gonna is gonna be there for you. No, I want you specifically to know that you that I that you have someone in your corner, that you have someone here that is going to recognize you in every facet of your life, in any way that I can. That if you're not supported in any other place, when you walk into these four walls, you will be supported by someone. So using those words and being very obvious, being very intentional about making sure that students know that you hear them, you see them, and you're there for them. Wow. Um, everything that you just said, I mean, I feel like if we, the generations before us that we are currently making a change for, we would have a better system currently. So thank you for doing that work because I know there are students, even in my own classroom, that have confided in me and, and many different things. Um, and I, when I go home, I'm like, wow, they, they, they can't, they trust me, y'all, they trust me. But it's because like, I know how it feels to say, um, I've never said this before, here's who I am. And so that's scary. 
that's scary to tell their parents. So most of the time, us teachers are the first person either they come out to or anything like that, or tell their troubles to. So we, we have to really carry that like, a, like it's a diamond because their trust means a lot. We can't make the music that we love without their trust. Um, and so it kind of leads me to the next um, question um, to Dr. Turner. Um, on the realm of how to be an ally, um, usually um, I have seen sometimes that uh, some people go above and beyond when it comes to being an ally um, to where it can become as like culturally appropriating or tokenism. How do you um, be a great ally? What are some tips and, and things that you might have for that? Um, uh, good morning again, everybody. Uh, I, I, I think I need to acknowledge something before I get into some um, practical things that we can all do. I want to acknowledge that I am not always a great ally. Uh, I have a lot to learn because of my privilege. Um, I, there have been so many times in my career that I have felt, I don't know, perhaps as a woman that I needed to prove myself and my self-worth, uh, that I rarely, if at all, considered the oppression of others. So um, allyship for me, my, my personal relationship with it, which is, which is ongoing, is, is largely about stepping outside of myself. Um, stepping outside of my traditionally taught and held beliefs. We mentioned quality, um, we're, we're skirting around that issue, but you know, our, who has defined quality for us, right? And, and what that actually means. Stepping outside of my privilege, if possible, and listening carefully to those uh, around me who are, who are not white. So allyship is a noun for me because I believe that there is systemic racism. I believe that many of our institutional and social societal systems marginalize others. And so I believe that those of us who are white and cisgender have an obligation to be allies. Allyship is a verb in the sense that to be an ally means that I'm working very hard at being an ally for justice and checking that I'm not being a white savior. I'm partnering, I'm collaborating, I'm listening, I am speaking out, and I'm acting intentionally. I do want to say that I think it's important to acknowledge as well that some progress has been made and is being made in the windband world. Um, but we have a long, long, long way to go, and I can, we can get into what progress some grassroots organizations and uh, things that are slowly happening at Midwest, but for the purposes of this, I think we can all agree that we have a long way to go. So we are seeing more diversity in the wind band world, but equity, not so much. So um, there are basically three areas that I think that we can think about being more intentional. Representation at conferences and in leadership, performance and study lists, repertoire and programming. These are the three areas within the wind band field that I think need to be addressed. Ideas, hire more women, hire more BIPOC and uh, queer composers, conductors and clinicians to write new pieces, address your students, judge your performances, elect and appoint more underrepresented and equity-seeking populations, 
into the leadership positions in regional, state, national, and international organizations. And once they are there, listen to their stories and ideas for change. And for goodness sake, because I still see this, take on all those posters in your band room that only show white men playing brass instruments. <laughs> Address outdated, I'm sorry, I'm reading because I wanted to sort of organize my thoughts. Address outdated repertoire lists, we've talked about this already, that marginalize entire groups of artists. Call it out, especially if you are in a place of privilege. Don't be afraid to speak like I was when I was younger, to gatekeepers of such lists and demand better. Be intentional with programming. Consider what quality means and who gets to decide. I know we're harping on that, but it's a big, big it's a big issue and a systemic issue when we talk about quote-unquote standard repertoire. Think about relevance. We've talked a little bit about that as well. What is relevant to your students, your community, your administrators, to the world outside of the wind band bubble? Um, okay, here's some small steps. Do I have time? Anthony, to just go through some small steps. Okay, educate yourself. Visit and we were heard, and I think these resources are going to be available to you at the at the end of this. Uh, composer diversity and colorful music websites to access recordings and music that you might not know about. Join social justice music educators on Facebook. Go with an open heart to clinics and sessions and conferences that specifically address issues of diversity, equity, inclusivity, and intersectionality. You're here, and that's awesome. Listen to TED Talks and podcasts. They're available at the end of this. Amplify your personal efforts. Don't be afraid to amplify your personal efforts and amplify the efforts of others. Tweet and retweet posts about wonderful new works by underrepresented composers you have programmed and want to know more about. Contact living composers. <laughs> Just do it. They want to hear from us. Commission or jointly commission living underrepresented composers perform and re-perform their works. Find colleagues who are programming underrepresented composers and reach out. When introducing yourself in person or in an online environment, add your pronouns. Confront anti-queer jokes in your rehearsal spaces. Let your students know that they will, those jokes will not be tolerated and why they will not be tolerated. Learn about the range of sexualities in the queer spectrum. Post the rainbow sticker on your door. It's that easy. It's a very small gesture, but it matters. And finally, start with why. Cecilia talked about this and I love it. I read a book in the summer called um, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. I highly recommend it. Why is the majority of band music written by white cisgender men? Just ask why. Why are there mostly men in leaderships, positions of leadership in our field? Why do our students need to understand what inclusivity means and what it looks like and sounds like? Why do our students who are black need to see and hear from black composers, conductors, and clinicians? Why do our white, why do our white students need to hear those same voices and see those faces? Why do girls need to see women in leadership and why do boys or non-binary students need to see those same women? Why should we care about this? I can always be a better ally and I have a lot to learn, but we must own our privilege and biases 
and accept the work we need to do. We won't always be good at it. We will make mistakes, accept that, and move forward. I got one thing to say. Thank you, Dr. Turner. That was just, and it just opened up something to me. Um, um, the, the risk of saviorism, that delineates everything we're trying to work for. The minute that happens, you're not making room at the table. You're taking the table. If you have privilege, you move the table to them. You give them the table. You make room in all these committees, not just DEI committees. Why don't you just throw them on the real committees? Because they should be there anyway. So if you have a source of privilege, uh, use it and don't become a savior because then that just, we're, why are we here? Honestly, if that happens. And I think Anthony has a great question to ask. Yeah, before I ask that, the point of why, before you go back into your classrooms and before you try to really put some of these things that we've suggested into your class, really ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why am I a teacher? Who am I teaching? And why do I want them to love this just as much as I do? Because if you can answer those, your students already feel welcome, already. Um, and so we have a question for the whole panel, but um, I'm gonna give it to um, Mr. Frazier first. Um, it says, do you feel as though there is an issue of people in marginalized groups also not being sensitive or international enough in DEI issues. How can we check ourselves no matter our background? Good job. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, and, and I feel that for sure, because here's the thing. Um, you all talking earlier about like those suits of armor that a lot of people put on. I grew up in um, Lexington, South Carolina. If you know anything about Lexington, South Carolina, there are not a whole bunch of people that look like me in Lexington, South Carolina. And so I grew up with that. My mom loves to tell the story. Um, I, I was there in from like kindergarten through the fifth or sixth grade. And as you can imagine, those are those are like essential formative years. And my mom asked me one time, she oh sorry, she she told me about the story when I was a kid. She asked me, or I asked her, I said, hey mom, um, she was picking up for, picking me up after school and I said, Mom, when am I gonna turn white? Okay, right. I know. That's what thirty-five-year-old me is saying the same thing. Like, who child was you going through back then? Back then, but it was because that's what I was surrounded by, and I had become so um, uh, it had become such a part of me to assimilate into what was around me all of the time that I completely stripped myself of any type of uh, um, genuine culture that I really, really had. And so I think, um, it, it, and I was talking to um, one of my friends about this, and we talked about like generations of how you know we we now uh, can look at like my my parents' generation, and we can look back and go, you know, why were you so intent on us going to college? Why were you so intent on us having our hair look just like this? But da 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 da. Um, but I've learned to give them a a a a, a significant amount of grace because they were operating in a world where they had to survive. I talked to my granddad who is still alive, thank you Jesus, he's 92. And uh, he, grew, he was growing up in Greenville, South Carolina. And it, uh, born in the 30s, growing up in the 40s. And he would tell about some of the stories that he um, one time went to go uh, get a hamburger 
And, you know, he, because, you know, one of his eight children was like, hey, you know, daddy can get a burger. And so uh, he went there and um, he went to the, the, the restaurant. They said, well, you know, we can, we can serve you, but you got to go around back. We can't serve you here, but you got to go, you got you to go around to the back in order for us to give you anything. And so I think about just the fact that he is operating, he spent his entire life operating in a place of, this is what I have to do to survive. And so I think uh, to, to, the, to the question, yes, I think that does happen very often um, within um, cultural communities because it, it, I mean, look at the news. It comes to, it's, it, it's almost a matter of life and death for real, for real. And so uh, I think, you know, it, it, it's important to keep yourself surrounded by people um, that you can, uh, that can ground you, that you can stay grounded with, people that you can, that you can uh, speak about these, these uh, experiences you're going through. Because I didn't really peep that until I became an adult. Like, I didn't even think about what, you know, and then obviously do like a year of therapy. Therapy works, by the way. Um, but um, I went through, and, I, and I'm talking, and, and all these things are coming up about just things that I had just been operating in my life. Just like, this is just Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Not even thinking about the effect that it had on my psyche, that it had on who I am as a person. And then honestly, how I look at other people that look like me. <laughs> you know, just because I spent, because I had spent so much time trying to become something that I'm not, wasn't ever gonna be, and am not to this day, that I then had to uh, I kind of circle back and go, this is what was going, this is what was happening. My mom put me in those schools because she wanted me to have a very fine education. She wanted me to be able to, she, she it, it had been um, hammered into her mind that in order for your child to succeed, they have to go to this school. She was trying to survive. She was trying to make sure that her next generation would survive, you know? And so I give her a great deal of grace for all of that, but then I realize, okay, well, it's my responsibility to realize what I, uh, what I have experienced over those years. Recognize, just like you were talking earlier about, you know, you, you know, when you know better, you do better, essentially, right? When you recognize that something that you have been doing or a pattern of behavior that you've, uh, ex that you have um, uh, ex exhibited, thank you, exhibited is, Okay, well that's that's how Sheldon was, but that ain't how Sheldon's gonna be, you know. But um, it, it takes uh, a great deal of introspection and thinking through those experiences, many of which you didn't have, a, you don't have a lot of control over, particularly when you're a kid. Um, that as you get older is a part of that growth, that change process, um, and, and recognizing those things. I don't remember the question, but I just wanted to speak about something that you. Um, it is incumbent upon people that are part of equity-seeking communities to challenge our implicit bias or the need to police ourselves when we're indifferent. Yes, <laughs> to police ourselves when we're indifferent. Um, you know, in the uh, in the presence of people that don't look like us or that are in different communities. Um, we have our own biases that are detrimental to our development, and it's something that we have to work on. Like, so for instance, you know, to this day, because I have to give my mom grace as well. My mom was born in Haiti, so she, she, she grew up in Haiti, then came here. So she has certain 
survival mechanisms that have been ingrained in her as well as in, you know, here I am in America, this is what you have to do. Every time I see my mom, she says, you got to cut your hair. She's like, you got you to shave your beard. And you're going to scare white people. Honestly, she's like, you're going to, I'm, I'm afraid you're going to get pulled over and the cop is going to think this and blah, 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 blah. Um, and it's a real, it's a real concern for her and for me um, because we know the realities of what, you know, the world we live in. But it is incumbent upon us to not police ourselves when we're in, um, like I said, when we're in the presence of others um, so that they can learn who we truly are because it's exhausting. So I, I think there are people that are not in equity-seeking um, communities that are, have been oblivious to the fact that for most of their entire lives, people from outside of their communities police themselves in their presence, and they had no idea. So they don't know where that anger comes from. Like, you know, a couple summers ago, when we see everything going on, they're like, what, I mean, you, you, you vote now, you know, and we, yeah, you, you vote, and Obama was president, you know? Well, what's the problem? Same thing for men and women. Same thing for men and women. A lot of times I see conversations between men and women or um, people that are cisgender and people that are not, and we don't understand where that anger comes from. And a lot of times we have to understand it comes from the fact that they police themselves. People are policing themselves in the presence of others, and it's exhausting. Yep. Yes. Um, yes. Um, first of all, can we just thank all of the panelists right now? I know we're, we're running on your time, but I just want to say that this conversation is not over. Please. This conversation is not over. Literally meaning, we we are going to be releasing this episode next Wednesday, by the way. Please like, subscribe. <laughs> Our relative bitch uh, on YouTube, Spotify, and everything else. Share it if someone wasn't in the room that Correct. Um, we will have a part two to this, because we have questions that were not answered, but we will be answering them on the podcast. But also, this conversation is not over for you as well. You have to do the work. Because if each one of you in here doesn't do the work and share what you heard today, our profession will cease to exist because nobody wants to be here anymore. You have to do the work, starting with your own. Oh, my list. Oh, there's a list. Uh, I'm so sorry. I wasn't even looking at this program because we were getting off. There's a list of um, resources that were talking about under, upper, under, wow, underrepresented composers and um, on our website. Please check it out. Please share it. And it's on your program on page four where you can find the link. Yeah, there's also, we have um, questions to ask yourself as a band director also on page four of the program. And our website is relativepitchpodcast.com. Um, and also, uh, all of our past episodes are also on YouTube, Spotify. Please go check them out. We have had amazing guests on and conversations just like this um, online. Um, and so, just thank you again for being a part of this. Like Anthony said, this is not over. This is the beginning. Nowhere near the end. Not even in the middle. But it's progress. And that's what we're asking for. 
Um, for those of you who ask questions, like we said, we'll be talking more about it. Send us an email, relativepitchpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to just chat. Instagram, Facebook. Come talk to us afterwards. We'll be up here. Um, and just thank you so much again. This is, for us, it's an honor to be able to talk about these, have these conversations at a place like this. You know what that represents. Um, so uh, like Dr. Turner said, we are going towards somewhere, but it's just the start. So thank you again. And one thing before we go, if you know anybody who um, is has opinions on these topics that you think you would love to hear on a podcast, can you please either email us or uh, comment on our YouTube or on our Facebook page because we want to bring them on a podcast and let their voice be heard as well because their voices need to be heard. So if you have anybody in mind, either tell us, um, email us and everything. But thank you so much for being here. You were doing the necessary work. Thank you. Thank you.